Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and this year's Jerome Brody Lectureship. And we are delighted to have our guest speaker here who will be introduced to us by Dr. Rick Enlow. Dr. Enlow is a professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology, and he uh, is the director of the interstitial disease program, uh, interstitial pulmonary disease program in the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine. So to introduce today's speaker to us, Please, Rick, will you come and tell us about him? So it's a pleasure to uh, introduce our visiting speaker today, um, Dr. J. Raja Gopal. Um, uh, and uh, before I get started uh, telling you a little bit about uh, Dr. Raja Gopal, Wanted to just make a brief introduction about the um, the history of the Jerome Brody lecture. Um, unfortunately, his his uh, widow, Mrs. Marlene Brody, um, who usually attends and asks usually pointed questions, um, is not well at the moment, but not nothing serious. So we will uh, endeavor to record this and send her a copy uh, of, the, of the lecture. Um, um, Mr. Jerome Brody was a graduate of Dartmouth and of Tuck and um, went on to develop uh, a, a number of destination restaurants in New York, Gallagher's Steakhouse, uh, the Four Seasons, the, uh, the Grand Central Station Oyster Bar, or at this time, and um, the uh, Miss Brody, uh, Marlene, or Marlon as she prefers to be called, uh, met Mr. Brody in Paris when Marlon was translating and interpreting for John Steinbeck, and she went to work for with Mr. Jerome Brody, uh, extending their uh, restaurant endeavors into Paris. They eventually moved back to New York and they settled in both the city and in upstate New York where they developed a uh, thoroughbred breeding farm where they are amongst the leading thoroughbred breeders in the country right now. And unfortunately, Mr. Brody died of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and the lecture was endowed to help, help understand and spread understanding of the pathogenesis and the uh, advances in understanding idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, as well as related lung diseases. Um, and I would point out she also ha was, has been very generous in supporting our research in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and we're very thankful for that. Um, she, um, she is very interested in the notion of regenerative medicine, um, as are we, we all, um, as we endeavor to understand the pathophysiology of the disease, we also would like the opportunity at some point, um, maybe in six, 12 months, 
something like that, uh, to re be able to rebuild new tissue, new lungs. And, and uh, as we learn more and more about the, the genes involved in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and have the technologies to, to change those genes, as it were, um, all we need to do is figure out how to get those back in and, and you know, nothing, nothing too complicated. And so today we're going to hear about um, some of the uh, work of uh, Dr. J. Uh, Rajakpal, who has been at Harvard for his entire career, uh, graduated undergrad, medical school, residency. Uh, I, I think he went to elementary school. Or <laughs> no, I did. Plug out. Plug out. Um, uh, he is in the, he's an associate professor of medicine and a member of the Center for Regenerative Medicine, which is a booming endeavor at Massachusetts General. Um, and they're working on all manner of different uh, techniques and uh, diseases. And in, most importantly, in the underlying science that's needed to understand how we go from point A to point B, because right now stem cell biology is really more heat than light, and we're going to hear a little bit about some of the light. Uh, so I'll turn it over to Dr. J, and waste no more time. It's really a pleasure to be here. Can you hear me? Uh, we had a great dinner last night where I learned thoroughbred racing to oysters to chromosomal anomaly, so it was, it was really just fun. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is actually a strong interest of mine. I'm not going to talk about it particularly today, but hopefully you could see how theoretically we could connect the dots between what I present you here. Um, and also, please feel free to interrupt me. I have quite a few slides, but I could stop almost anywhere in the lecture and we could have a good discussion. And there's no reason to really go all the way through it necessarily. Uh, and as pretty, if I'm not clear, please go ahead and stop me. Uh, this is actually an airway epithelium that was created from an IPS cell from a patient. Mm -hmm. So the skin of a cystic fibrosis patient, we were able to create into this uh, some seven or eight years ago now. Uh, and my postdoctoral fellowship was basically in lung organogenesis. How, do you, how does the embryo make a lung? And we figured about 10 to 15 steps uh, that the embryo uses to do that. And then we were able to coax skin uh, into doing this as well. Now, actually, I'll tell you about things that I think are even better uh, than doing that. But for all intents and purposes, I think one of the big... Uh, things here to say is that we will have human models that are going to be terrific in the next decade. They're not going to be like an in vivo mouse model of disease, but they will be just short of that. Um, and furthermore, I think since we have the phenome that the clinicians present, um, and we now have genetics and we have CRISPR-Cas, in my own view, human models will displace most of the other models, even in terms of basic biology. I mean, obviously, the fly is not going anywhere. The worm is not going anywhere. 
But I think human model systems are going to become more and more important, not just to clinicians and physician scientists like myself, but actually to basic biologists. And I'll try to take you through why I think that is, but that's going to be really exciting. And a kind of simple way to say it is when a mouse dies and you, of a lung disease and you write a cell paper, that intern who wrote that cell paper would be thrown off the wards. That's how primitive the characterization of the mouse phenotype is. You, we have no, when a mouse dies from a knockout experiment and it's published in Cell Nature or Science, we fundamentally have zero clue why that mouse is dying. It just, does, it just gasps. We don't even do a CT scan. I mean, we, the pathology description is just nonsense. So that's where we're at. So I do think that if we get the human model systems, we get to exploit all the biology that we do as clinicians. Uh, because we do a lot of it. It's just phenotypic. It's not laboratory science. But that's going to come back. That's the big theme even outside of lung. But I'll try to take you deeper into why I think lung can be used as one lens to kind of look at this bigger picture. So I'm a stem cell biologist and a developmental biologist. So everything we really knew about stem cells was from this system, the blood system. And fantastically, clinicians, long before the science was established, I'd point out, were able to do bone marrow transplants. Then we had skin, and I don't have time to tell you about it today, but they're basically curing certain forms of blindness with stem cell-based patches. There have only been a few trials, but it's amazing. Like, there are patients that are seeing. Uh, and I'm a very conservative person. I tell, when patients call me about lung disease, I tell them there's nothing available and that they should not go to any of those clinics. But they should wait. They should wait, and things are going to be happening in the next decade for sure. Uh, so I try to send an honest, hopeful message, but I also try to remind people that they should not be, in general, going and getting squirted with cells unless it's a very sophisticated center uh, that's actually doing a trial. Because there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there, and if any of you are practicing pulmonologists, you need to keep your patients away from them. And those of you who know, when you have an older patient that's orbiting for a transplant and there's nothing else to offer, you, you've seen it yourselves probably. They'll go for anything. Uh, so that's another message as clinicians I'd like. Just stop it. Uh, I'll be just very blunt. Do not allow your patients to go to most of those places. And if you're going to send them somewhere, make sure you do your homework and that it's really, you know, a fantastic center that's doing state-of-the-art science. Um, but in any case, <clears throat> off my soapbox and back to the science. Um, so basically, you know, you have a hematopoietic stem cell. Then you have an invariant lineage. And some of you know about, like, all of the various facets of the lineage. It's beautiful, and we understand it to a high degree, and then you have the business end, right? Which as doctors we think about a lot. The red blood cell, the various kinds of white cells, the lymphocyte, and the megas that produce platelets. And this is the business end, and the, the entire understanding of stem cells is based on this. There's a top, there's something that sits on the top, the master cell, it gets like segregated into various progenitors that that are able to replicate so you can make more of those cells. And ultimately, you terminally differentiate into a mature cell, and you can't go backwards. And then the next thing I'll say to you is the major form of control mechanism is negative feedback. And what I mean by that is if you lose a red blood cell, there's a sensor, like erythropoietin, that goes backward in a super elegant system and tells some progenitor to make more. 
So that's what we thought stem cells did. And it's very intuitive. And if you think about the skin, if you like scratch the surface of your skin, what's going to happen? The stem cells are going to kick in and you're going to make more skin. They're already working a lot because skin is a high turnover tissue, but they'll crank it up even more. That's what the intestine does too, right? So that was the state of thinking in stem cells when we started our experiments. I love the lung for so many reasons, partly because it affects so many patients and we have so little to do for them. But also as a stem cell biologist, it's a lovely system. Uh, first of all, when I was starting, it wasn't even thought to regenerate. But if a clinician, a pulmonologist thought about it, that's patently wrong. Because you know you have firemen going into buildings and they cough for a while and they get better. You have patients with flu. If you look at electron micrographs from patients who died of Spanish flu, they just have open basement membrane. They're shocking pictures. Basically, they have no cells. Uh, and what happened was that the destruction was so prominent that there was no ability for stem cells to have regenerative action. So we should have known, if we thought clinically, we would have known the lung was not a static tissue. But the other thing is Bridget Hogan and her colleagues have shown that in the airway epithelium, there's a basal stem cell that call that because it sits on top of the basement membrane. That makes a secretory cell which will make mucus when activated, and that makes a ciliated cell, which is, you know, sweeps the mucus out. I'm obviously oversimplifying. But you can see, this is a lot simpler than hematopoiesis. I'll tell you why it's not this simple a little bit later, but it's fun for a biologist, because this is actually understandable. Uh, when you have that many cells, I can tell you, we'll, we will never understand hematopoiesis at a high level. It's just too complicated. But when you have three cells, you have a chance of really defining the system. Um, so we did the simplest thing we could possibly do. We removed cell by cell by using diphtheria toxin. And I can tell you every result that we thought of based on hematopoiesis was wrong. Every single result we thought. So basically, we decided to take away the stem cell. Now, um, the medical students in the audience can predict that the conclusion should be that you develop fibrosis because you don't have stem cells, your epithelium fails, and then you scar. So that's what we thought we were going to do. We thought we would get a model for asthma, airway remodeling, something like this, or stem cell failure. The equivalent would be bone marrow fibrosis. But that is not what happened. So here's, here's where clinical medicine really matters to science. There's no way to destroy a basal stem cell of the lung because there are basal cells all over your body. And so, for example, in the skin, when you give a mouse, when you activate that basal cell diphtheria toxin, the mouse dies of dehydration. So what we did was we gave the mouse a NEB. We realized that if we activate the gene product through the airway, like we do with an asthma patient, we can actually get uh, perfect lung-specific stem cell ablation. Um, so it was, it was neat. If, I don't think we would have thought of this if we didn't take care of patients also. Because this technology existed for 10 to 15 years, just no one did it because uh, they couldn't put those dots together. But then this is the result, okay? What happened was there are stem cells at the bottom and some of them replicate. This is KI67. And there are green secretory cells on the top. That's what it should look like. It's a low turnover stem cell system. Occasionally a stem cell replicates and it makes one of these differentiated cells. Here's the result on the bottom. You can see we took away those stem cells. 
right? And suddenly things are having red nuclei, which means they're replicating. But it's the green cells that are replicating the most. That doesn't make any sense, right? So that would be as though you took away your bone marrow stem cell and some red blood cell progenitor started proliferating. It just not, it's very counterintuitive. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to be the case. So what we did is what developmental biologists always do, and this was a, it generated a simple result, but simple results usually involve very complicated experiments. And that's because this animal had to have four transgenes. And if we didn't invent that nebulizer thing, it would have been five transgenes, and it would have almost been too expensive and too difficult to do the experiment. But the reason we needed to do that was we needed two transgenes to label those secretory cells with GFP. So that's called lineage tracing. And it means that that cell, that secretory cell, will stay green. And all its daughters will stay green. So that's called a lineage trace, and it's one of the most important things that developmental biologists do. And it's problematic because we can't do it in humans. It's like bread and butter of what a developmental biologist does, and we can't do it in humans. So that's why we use mice uh, for these experiments. So we, so we use two transgenes to make secretory cells always green. And then we ablated the basal cells, which took two other transgenes. So this is what you always see, right? And this entire paper is just this one slide. Um, the rest is just decorations on the Christmas tree, proving that we were right. But, but this is GFP. So those are secretory cells marked in green. And these are the stem cells on the bottom. And they're totally separate. But look what happens when you remove stem cells. Suddenly, there's green cells that look round and sitting on the basement membrane. And the rest of that decoration of the Christmas tree, I said, was proving that that's a stem cell. So what does that mean? That, that basically means that terminally differentiated cells in our body can go backward and become stem cells. This is the first time anyone showed that we had that kind of plasticity in the body. And I think partly it's because the lung is such a beautifully plastic organ that it was easy to demonstrate. So what that means is to draw analogy to hematopoiesis is it's like a red blood cell progenitor can become a stem cell. Basically that we can go backwards. And I'll try to tell you why that's a little scary if you start thinking about it. So we tried to put this in vitro and we were able to put a single stem cell, I mean a single secretory cell, mature cell, that was lineage labeled green and put it in a dish, and lo and behold, it started expressing stem cell markers. So we could recapitulate it in a dish. And it was easy. And in fact, people have been doing this for 20 years without realizing it. Um, so the next point that we did was we took a single secretory cell and a single stem cell and put them right up against each other uh, in ways I can describe to you afterwards if you'd like. But remember, the secretory cells are green, and their daughters will be green, and the basal stem cells are not green. So this is the result. I mean, it's very rare to have a totally binary result in biology, but this was almost like 100% true. We didn't find a single cell that violated this rule. And that is that a secretory cell stays a secretory cell, and a basal cell stays a basal cell. And all you have to do is have them next to each other. And they know, they know not to change into one another. Um, so they sense each other. 
And this is a solution for actually how you make organs big, right? Because how do you control the exact cell numbers over this macroscopic organ? How is it that when a pathologist looks, there's the perfect number of ciliated cells and secretory cells? And how do you get that exquisitely beautiful proportionality? And the reason is because it's one-to-one cell talking to each other. And every single part of the trachea, every single cell is directly on a contact basis talking to one another. So that's how you get extremely local control to make organs. Then we said, you know, this was people were kind of shocked by this. And, you know, we had to be 100% sure we were correct. Because uh, when John Gurdon cloned a frog and won a Nobel Prize for this, he took an intestinal stem cell from a tadpole and made a whole tadpole. But that was like the oldest form. That was called cloning. And we were basically saying humans are capable of the same thing in a different format. The objection to John Gurdon's experiments was he isolated some kind of funky embryonic cell in the intestine of those tadpoles. And it was not an intestinal cell. It's just there's some embryonic remnant in the gut and that he had not proved that you could clone an animal. Uh, it's just a trick. So what we did was we figured out fax markers to make our cells like separated by maturity. And this is a middle-aged cell. This is a very old cell. And this is a young cell. You'll notice that the older cells are filled with mucus. So you could just look at them, and we used a transgene to prove it, but they are by definition a fully mature terminally differentiated cell because you literally look at them and they're full of mucus. And unfortunately, they don't make uh, spheres the way the others do. But what I'm not showing you is that in even 8% of the time, these form beautiful spheres just like this. So I think we have definitive proof, at least in the mouse, that a fully terminally differentiated cell can become a stem cell. So that's the degree of plasticity you have in epithelial tissues. Uh, once you make a cell, it doesn't mean you're going to stay that cell. That's what we used to think. But it's no longer true. Why is this important in a more global scheme? I've already told you about tissue architecture, how you get structure. But if you think about regeneration and then you think about infection, right? it's known that some of these cells have specific viral surface receptors. Right? So let's say uh, flu infects only secretory cells. And let's say HPV only infects basal cells. And that's somewhat true. It's not strictly true. But let's just imagine that it did. If HPV got into you and it was an aggressive form of HPV that we don't usually see, you would basically wipe out your stem cell compartment. And that would be a lethal event. But now your secretory cell that doesn't have that viral receptor can regenerate you perfectly. And vice versa, if you have a virus that attacks a different cell, the other cell can take over. Well, functionally, it changes our definition of stem cells. Like, I don't really care if we call something a stem cell. I just want to know if that cell is a source of regeneration. And the stem cell business is just a state. It's just one state that cell can adopt. Uh, but the more important thing is that we have multiple ways of regenerating. The scariest part is this. Um, if we have this much plasticity normally, why is it that we are not always developing cancer? And obviously, I'm not going to talk about why that is. But it is scary for cancer. And while 
I was doing these experiments, my postdocs were doing these experiments, and a set of great results came out uh, at Mass General, and I think there were some case reports before, which is there were lung cancer patients who were being treated with EGFR antagonists. And everyone was thrilled because the tumors were getting smaller, and it was miraculous, but at the same time, they always grew back in a year. And the notion was for the first time we would rebiopsy patients, and I'm sorry if I'm telling you stuff you all know, but I just want to be on the same page. Um, and we would rebiopsy patients to see how their EGF receptor mutated to avoid that, that chemotherapy. That was the reason we were doing it. But every once in a while, you would rebiopsy a non-small cell cancer, and it turned out to be small cell. Now we know that happens in 15% of the time. So when someone, I'm 48, when I was training, that patient would be called, well, first of all, we'd never find that patient because we would never rebiopsy. But if we happened to do it, we would say, this person is very unlucky. They have some kind of funky tumor syndrome, and they've developed two primaries, and they happen to be close to it. That would have been our answer. But now in the age of genome sequencing, we basically know those are the same clones. And then clinically, the important thing is that patient is now responding to small cell chemotherapy, not non-small cell chemotherapy. Now, if you step back, and once you know something, it's all obvious, right? But if you're a cancer and you're mutating like all your genes, isn't it an elegant way to avoid the chemotherapy to just change your identity? It's so obvious. Like, why should I stay being this cancer if someone is trying to attack me? I should just activate the genes that the embryo attacks to, uses to become a different cell type. It's like so obvious. Um, why wouldn't it happen? Because the cancer cell is mutating everything it's got. So then I went back and you know, I always find as a scientist, it's best to go talk to the clinicians. So if you're gonna study lung cancer, it's good to use mouse models, but you really need to go back to the pathologist and sit down and talk to them, because they've studied very hard, and they know so much that they are never telling us. <laughs> Seriously, those path reports are like so trivial compared to what they actually know. The problem is they don't know what they don't know. Like they see all kinds of stuff, they've told themselves stories, they've put together these beautiful intellectual stories, but they have no proof for it. But they know so much, it's unbelievable. So I think when you're thinking about disease, another kind of take-home message for the young people is go look at the disease. You know, there's more than CT scans for pulmonary. You have to look at the biopsies. And you have to accept that most of it we're not going to understand. But that's where our hypotheses will come from. If you're interested in cells, you have to look at the cells. So there's something very interesting about this image. First of all, we're told that cancers are like monotonous structures of proliferating tissue. But look at this. There is nothing monotonous about any of this stuff. I mean, these are glands. This may not be a normal organ, but it is an organ. It's not a mass of growing cells. I mean, some tumors are like that, but the abundance of tumors are not. They are highly structured, right? This is a squamous cell. I mean, you can see the airway epithelium here. This is basically a gland. The lung usually doesn't have glands, right? Where is it coming from? We do have some glands up here in the trachea, but why are there glands in the alveolus? I mean, there is something interesting here, right, that should have been interesting for, like, decades and decades. Uh, 
But it's just that people didn't have the tools to think about this. The final thing I'm going to tell you, I think, is the most important thing, is that I, I think usually sometimes I give you the punchline later, but I'll give you the punchline now, is this is all from the same tumor. Um, so when a pathologist, and you know, another thing for the young people in the audience, go talk to the older clinicians uh, because they have spent even more time thinking and they have done so many experiments that they have not told you about. So if you go talk to an older pathologist, he will tell you or she will tell you that there is no such thing as an adenocarcinoma or a squamous carcinoma, that they're all adenosquamous, and it's just a matter of percentage. So I think plasticity has been there forever. It's just that we're sort of ignoring it. Um, and now it sort of makes sense. Um, and it's a little bit scary. And you can see why. I kind of laid out why I think it's kind of scary. Um, and now maybe we'll, we'll, I'll try to bring some rigor to that. So my postdoc, you know, so there's all this work, beautiful work about cancer genome sequencing, and we've identified a lot of genes. But the way people tend to use that information is then to do something called unbiased clustering. You take every single mutation and you try to separate out cancers into different categories. As a developmental biologist, I know a lot about the lung, and when I look at those gene sets, they mean nothing to me. I just cannot figure out how a cancer is getting formed. So what Tata did was the simplest kind of thing, right? Two genes as opposed to the entire genome. One is NKX2.1, which is the transcription factor that makes you lung during embryogenesis, and SOX2 is the transcription factor that makes you airway. So to a developmental biologist, if we were going to say, what are the two most important, like, cell fate-specifying genes, these would be the ones. Um, and Tata did something I, I was sure would not work. But he went to the cancer genome atlases, and he just downloaded the data. Uh, I didn't think it would work, because we developmental biologists tend to be very nerdy and niggly, and we want to know that you have an epithelial cell, we want its lineage, the kind of stuff I showed you before. And Tata went to this data, and you know I find it very difficult to like, we're just grinding up tumors for this stuff. So there's endothelial cells, there's fibroblasts, there are immune cells, there are epithelial cells. Basically, I don't trust that data because I think our, we don't even know where the oncogene is. How do you know the oncogene isn't in the endothelial cell? I mean, we make so many assumptions about it. But he, he you know, you want, another lesson is for the middle-aged folks that you always let your postdocs do whatever they, they want to do because they're, they're going to do it anyway and you might as well look like you're supportive. Um, <laughs> So then we, we do this, and he just looked at transcription. And the thing is, you know, when SOX2, some, some of those cancers had low SOX2 expression, and they had low NKX2.1 expression. And if you step back and think about it, how, as a lung cancer, can you possibly be a lung cancer without the two genes that make you a lung? So very simple-minded thinking. Um, then here's what happens. When you look at the cells with high SOX2, you are squamous. That's what we predict. You're like the airway. And it turns out not only are there lung genes there, though, airway genes, there are esophageal genes there. Because SOX2 is super high. In fact, it's copy number amplified. 
That's what made us feel good about picking these genes also, because there's prognostic information in cancer that SOX2 copy number amplification is bad and that NKX2.1 loss is bad. So another general theme is embryonic molecules, you know, these devel developmental biology is going to become very important because over and over again you see intersections with cancer. And I'm sure it's going to be important for pulmonary fibrosis. We just don't know how yet. And the simple-minded way to think about that is cells are changing. Cells are changing their state. And so it must be affecting these molecules because this is what the body uses to affect cell state. So then, if you have NKX2.1, it's really nice. You express lung genes. There may be wrong proportions and blah, 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 but there are lung genes. But look what happens when you don't express NKX2.1, right? First of all, for some reason, there's all kinds of subgroups of these tumors. But the next thing that happens is you do express squamous genes, right? But they're esophageal squamous genes. And then you start expressing stomach and intestinal genes. Now, if you go back to the, the pathologist once again, they have known for a long time that there is a variant of lung cancer called the gastric variant of lung cancer. And it's debated whether that's good or bad. But we just sort of ignored that finding. Um, it was this curiosity that, you know, lung, I think lung cancer doctors thought about but didn't know what to do with. Um, and they generally thought that was a bad sign. Of, but, but that's actually also debatable. And then here I'll show you, this is a lung cancer, right? A stain from a human lung cancer. And this thing basically looks like an embryonic mini gut. I won't take you through all the, the transcription factors, but to an embryologist, this thing it looks like the, the, the boundary between the midgut and the hindgut, the, the, the embryonic duodenum. And in my mind, there is no way that this is an accident. It has to be that a mature cell is going backward to an embryonic gut cell, and then because it, it doesn't have the ability to know that it's supposed to be lung, it becomes what it can be. And so it becomes esophagus or intestine. And again, later on in the day, we can talk about mechanistically why that is, but I'd just rather leave you with the rationale. Um, so let, let's go back now again. I told you the other experiments were also relatively interesting. And we thought that we would do the simplest one, right? This was the no-brainer experiment. Um, and this is just lose the, the, the terminal cell of this lineage. This is like bleeding. Uh, you lose the red blood cell and progenitors have to kick in. Or you scratch the skin and your stem cells have to kick in. Um, so we thought either this cell or this cell would kick in and make more ciliated cells. This actually probably is one of the most interesting results my lab ever had because did nothing happen. Um, it's very hard to publish this uh, <laughs> because people don't like that. But actually it's the most interesting thing because it means that the organ does not even set, it's not counting. It's not like the blood system. The way this thing works is not as though you count the number of red blood cells or the number of platelets or the number. There is no GMCSF. There is no TIFO. At least there is no cilio or whatever you call it, right, that goes back to the stem cells. So what's happening? So here we have to scratch our heads and say, 
Well, what we've said is there's no feedback mechanism by definition. Um, so then what could happen? You could have a clock. That is to say, every once in a while, uh, one of these progenitor cells makes a ciliated cell. <clears throat> it's reasonable. It's very intimidating to a biologist because there's like a hundred different ways you could imagine that happens. But a little scary to try to figure out the mechanism. The other things seemed uh, the least possible, but something called a feed-forward regulation. Like, I mean, it really seems bizarre that the stem cell tells its daughter cell when to become ciliated. So, The reason we looked at this one was simply because we realized we had already done the experiment without, without thinking about it at all, because we had done a basal stem cell ablation. So if there is a feed-forward signal from the basal cell, by killing the basal cell, we are going to kill the feed-forward signal. So we'd already done it. We just didn't realize we'd done the experiment. And here's the result. So when you had a lineage-labeled secretory cell, here the secretory cells are separate than the ciliated cells. That's what you expect. They're two different kinds of cells. But now here you see green cells becoming ciliated cells. So that is, a, again, I had to scratch my head for a long time to like, figure out what that means. And so I'll just show it to you as a cartoon. Okay, we have this lineage and we take away the stem cell. This is what seems to be happening. Um, the stem cell, the secretory cell just decides to become something. And it makes some sense that if you don't have a stem cell, it wants to go backward and repopulate that stem cell, right? Because now I explained we wanted two ways of regeneration. This doesn't make any sense at all. But this is what nature does. Um, and it's probably because our systems are so artificial like, actually, nature probably never does the experiment that we did. Uh, but this allows us a handle to figure out what's happening. So I'm not going to go through this in detail, except to say, you know, we and others had shown that this gene called Notch, if you take it away, a secretory cell becomes a ciliated cell. And if you add Notch, you make a mucus cell. And this is what Notch does in almost every cell in the body. It's like a cell fate switch. It's used by like every single system in the body. So this, this was no surprise, but it was important to know. But the curious thing was that the secretory cell has no transcription factor. For some reason, it seems to lack a cell fate specifying molecule. And we just you know, tolerated that. We just figured we hadn't looked hard enough. But then we did this super simple thing was and this is, again, like why biology is so problematic, because you never know what you're doing. We did a stain one way, looking for notch. All we did was increase the sensitivity of the stain. All we did was amplify the stain. Because what we reasoned was there may be notch here. It's just that there are more notch here. And that turns out what's happening. And so there's some notch here that is, and it's being instructed to exist by the stem cell. And then it just gets turned up to make that. So a take-home message from this is not only is there plasticity, but our systems are constantly expending energy to keep us stable. Like the adult cell state is not passive. Like our bodies are constantly having to keep working and expending energy to keep their cells what they are. Homeostasis is a very energy-consuming process. Um, 
And then I won't take you through this in the interest of time, but we are, we are rigorous scientists and we figured out uh, what the exact signals are. I don't think they're important for the purposes of this lecture. But here's another thing I want you to think about. Um, this fellow Schofield like, came up with this idea of a niche. Now to stem cell biologists it's so obvious, and again its groundings were in hematopoiesis. The key experiments, well he was a clinician, not a scientist, but he went and did dog uh, experiments where he irradiated dogs and tried to give stem cells to reconstitute the, their bone marrow. These beautiful experiments. But the key thing that he was doing was he kept pumping up the dogs with more stem cells and he couldn't get more engraftment. It didn't make any sense to him and he postulated this idea that there must be homes for stem cells. And if you keep putting in more stem cells and they have no homes, it's useless. And that was the concept of a niche. Now we think of it as so obvious that if you don't ablate the marrow sufficiently, you can't get engraftment. But back then, apparently, this was really controversial. So, this, the, so basically, that is the classic paradigm that Schofield described is there's a home for a stem cell. And then occasionally, then that stem cell can do what it's supposed to make other cells. What I'm telling you we've discovered is that the stem cell itself is acting as a niche for its daughter. Do you know there's this super complicated interplay? Um, so one of the ways you can think about this, I don't know if I have it here. No, I don't have it here. But um, one of my colleagues uh, wrote a review on this paper. And what, the way she described it was that stem cells exert parental control. Kind of a way to remember it, right, uh, metaphorically. Because what the stem cell, the stem cell has a daughter. And it's as though the stem cell is keeping the daughter in its house. The parent is keeping the daughter in its house for a while, until it matures, and then the daughter goes to college. Um, and it, re it really is like that. And it turns out that stem cells are not just passive sources. I don't have time to describe it to you, and we haven't completed the experiments. But stem cells can actually also tell their daughters what to do. Um, and the stem cell can activate a notch signal that makes that notch go even higher, and then the daughter cell will become a mucus cell. So I now think of the stem cell as kind of a conductor, an orchestrator of the entire tissue, not just a passive cell that allows you to, to make uh, more cells. And then, you know, these things are all interesting, but why are they important? It turns out that Notch is now a target gene for decreasing mucus metaplasia. Uh, my, my friends at Novartis, kind of, we kind of talk this through. But if you block notch, you will block the production of mucus cells. I don't know if this is going to be clinically viable, but we now have genes to do this. So this basic biology is going to lead to therapies eventually. And I'd point out that you know this is a different kind of biology that we were, than we were talking about before. This is not stem cell therapy for the lung. This is understanding the way the lung works as a tissue, which includes stem cells, and that's going to form the mechanistic basis for new therapies, right? That's a different way of thinking about why stem cells are important. In my view, what stem cells have really done is get developmental biologists thinking about adult tissues. They developed all these beautiful ways to understand how an embryo is built. But now what we can do is use those same tools to understand how an adult is built. And so what stem cell, I think the most important thing that stem cell biology has done 
is actually allow us to relook at tissues and understand the way they work. So I think there's going to be a renaissance in the thinking about the way all of these organs work. And that's going to be very helpful. Like the liver is a perfect example. We really have no idea how it regenerates, but it's now a completely tractable problem. Uh, and that should help with things like cirrhosis. So the next thing, I've shown you that you can go backwards. I've shown uh, in a paper I won't describe, I show you that the basal stem cell can be smart and actually become a ciliated cell and violate the lineage that I showed you. Um, I've shown you that. And now, I don't, I mean, all of this could be possible, but we can't spend the rest of our lives defining what kind of cell state transitions there are. But they may all be possible. We're not going to do those experiments because I think we've established the principle. But the next question becomes like, how, oh, yeah, and some of these are only evoked in injury, and that's important. They don't do it normally, but you can bring it out, this plasticity. Um, but then we wondered how many different kinds of cells are we? Are we really sure there are only three cells? Why do we think so? We only think so because on an H&E stain, it looks like there's three cells. So now we have single cell genome sequencing, which we were talking about at dinner, and I think it's going to be super important, which allows you to establish the entire transcriptome of a single cell. So here I show you 8,000 cells from a mouse trachea. And what you'll see here is it's complicated. Um, it's not what I said. I don't even know if anything I've said so far is true. Uh, you know, because look, I mean, I don't even know how to mark these cells. Um, but there's some very, very interesting observations here. Uh, and uh, now I'll show you a more sophisticated analysis. Um, some of these cells actually occur in structures. I mean, it's basically as though, since we know the cell exists now, we could go back and stain for it. And this thing, I mean, it's, in some ways, it's the equivalent of a Peyer's patch of the intestine. <clears throat> but it occurs in the lung epithelium. There's actually new structures there that we didn't. It's like, you can think of it as the same as like discovering the islets of Langerhans. There's just a new, there's just a new way of staining tissue, the same way they invented the Fulgen stain a long time ago. And they suddenly saw that they were islets. But it turns out, not only do we have new cells, we have new structures. And then we have new markers. We suddenly have new genes because we have the entire transcriptome. And we have completely new and very important cell types. And I'll briefly show you why. So even tough cells, the pathologists have known these existed, but we had no information on them in the lung. We sort of knew they were inflammatory in the intestine. It turns out that there are multiple different kinds of tough cells. One of them has huge numbers of taste receptors, and the other has all kinds of immunomodulatory reagents. Now, I don't know what the biology of this, but a while ago, an HHMI investigator from Iowa, Mike Welsh, who studies CF, did an experiment where he put bitter compounds into the airway, and what happened was the cilia started beating faster. And the interpretation is that when you have a poisonous chemical, you want to get it out of your airway. Uh, that was the metaphorical idea, not proven. But now, when you have an inflammatory type cell that is expressing massive numbers of taste receptors in the airway, I mean, the obvious hypothesis is that we are sampling, the, we are tasting the air all the time. And it makes sense. I mean, we want to monitor what we're breathing. And then we want our cells to respond early. And the other half is 
uh, immunomodulating. And another theme, a lot of these new cells that we've identified are inflammatory cells. So one of the funny things is if you read like the asthma literature, on the immune side, you have TH17.3.5A. Like the, the, the immunologists have done such a beautiful job figuring out very complicated cell types. Like, you know, at some point we didn't even know CD4 versus CD8. Now there's such an exquisite, like, understanding. But it, when you read the asthma literature, each one of those, there's a paper on each one of those different cells interacting with the respiratory epithelium as though it was just a monotonous nothing. Um, but it turns out now that there's so many different kinds of cells in the airway epithelium that are each immunomodulatory. So now it's like this network, and it's going to get super complicated. But we have, for the first time, we have the ability to study that. This was the biggest shocker. There was a cell called an ionocyte, um, which is here. You can tell just by the number of dots that there are not many of them. But we called it an ionocyte because it expresses CFTR. And it also expresses a new transcription factor called FOXI1. But the kicker is that it doesn't seem like any other cell in the airway epithelium expresses CFTR. That, I said to my graduate student, can't possibly be true. Because CF is supposed to be a disease of the ciliated cells, and the entire surface airway epithelium is supposed to be coated with this ion channel, and that's the way we could regulate fluid flow, right? That is current understanding of CF biology, uh, but it's not the case. CFTR expressing cells are only 1 to 5% of cells. So that means that cystic fibrosis is a rare cell disease. I, I am hesitant to even say this to you because it flies in the face of so much thinking, but I think it's right. We keep doing experiments, and we keep getting the same conclusions. Um, and another group, our friends at Novartis, have exactly the same conclusions. It's basically because now we have single-cell sequencing. It's not, nothing. Anyone could have discovered this. If you, anyone would, will, would discover this if you did the experiments. But how could it have been wrong? I don't have time to tell you about how we could have possibly been wrong. I mean, CF, CF was the second clone disease. My friend at the Broad Institute of Yevragev, who's a very well-known uh, computational biologist, said to me, uh, this is the poster child of Mendelian genetics. We can't get this one wrong. Uh, we can't say this if it's not correct. But that's why we kept beating ourselves up. And this is one of those cases. This paper is sitting at Nature now. I hope the reviewers are brutal with us because I want to do every single possible experiment that disproves this because if this is true, it means it's much more likely we could do gene therapy for CF patients because instead of making a whole bunch of cells correct, we may only have to make 1% to 5% of cells correct, which is game-changing for the possibility of fixing it especially now that we have the stem cells that we know how to access better and better uh, viral gene delivery agents. So, but how could it have been wrong? This is a stain for CFTR, an antibody stain. And you see that they're right. It's everywhere on the apical surface. They're, they are right. The problem is this is a stain on the CFTR knockout mouse. So, 
it's probably just some kind of background. Uh, but remember, this disease has been around for a long time. There are seven to eight antibodies out here. So for the young people in the lab, I think the, uh, in labs, the answer is never skip the most basic experiment. Never assume anything. You know, ne ne When you buy a reagent for a company, assume it's the wrong molecule until proven otherwise. Like you can't trust anything, basically. I'm serious. I'm not kidding. Uh, you have to have that degree of skepticism. Is this yep. Yeah, I mean, we're going through every single one, one by one now. But the thing is, you know, there are other ABC transporters. CF is a huge gene. There are many, many other ion channels that look very similar to CF. So, you know, the only way to prove an antibody is 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 recognizing its target is to make the peptide, bind it with the antibody, elute the peptide, sequence the peptide, and then the other experiment needs to be to knock out the gene and show that the, you need all of those to be maximally. How often do we do that? That's why I'm telling you like almost everything I told you might be wrong, because with all those antibody stains I've showed you, I didn't do those proper experiments. But no human being can do that. But when you have a protein you think is super important, you're, you're banking your whole life on as a researcher, you have to do it. And now that we have CRISPR-Cas, you can do it. And frankly, there's no excuse not to do it. If there's some molecule that you're banking your life on, it needs to be done, because we can. But it is intimidating, because where do you draw the line? We can't, it just, we, there's not enough scientists to do the right experiment. Um, and then we took then how, this. So we took the proximal trachea and the distal trachea, and we said, are we sure the secretory cells are the same? Because on the single cell transcription profiles, they didn't look the same. They looked like the gene expression was different. So, and I'll, I won't tell you how the gene expression was different. So here's the proximal trachea, here's the distal trachea, both grown in, in air liquid interface culture. There's a lot more mucus cells down here. And that's consistent. <clears throat> And it turns out that some of those genes I showed you were things like the IL-13 receptor, which is known to be involved in asthma. But the more impressive thing here is this. IL-13, you can make some mucus cells from the proximal airway epithelium, but look what happens with the distal. Everything becomes mucus producing. And it turns out that in ovalbumin experiments in mice, it's only the distal trachea that gets mucus metaplasia. It's basically because you have multiple different kinds of secretory cells. And, you know, again, if I talk to my, like, older uh, pulmonology colleagues, they've always wondered why, like, different patients have different kinds of mucus consistencies. And there have been, like, rheological explanations and explanations based on glycoproteins. But a very simple explanation is they have different numbers of cells and they're making different kinds of mucins. And that might be very important. Uh, and then this one, I think I'm going to stop here because of time. Uh, but the, what we decided to do is take GWAS hits for all kinds of diseases. And one that we picked was asthma. But look where the asthma GWAS hit is showing up. It's only in ciliated cells. And it's the receptor for rhinovirus C. So now that GWAS hit that predicts that pediatric kids with rhinovirus infections will get asthma makes sense. 
You know, basically, the viruses are infecting ciliated cells when they're young. They're doing something. And we've converted a kind of GWAS hit into a genetic disease with a cellular basis. But the really cool thing is, I'm not saying that asthma is a disease of ciliated cells. Because other GWAS hits map onto different cells. So now it's more like leukemia. Right? There's multiple different cells. Asthma is just a gross phenotype. You can get asthma like you can get leukemia, but there's all different kinds of ways of getting to that phenotype. And in leukemia, you can look at the cells under a microscope and you know which cell is which. Now we can look at lung cells and know which one is which. Um, and then I'm just going to, I actually won't tell you about creating human models of disease because I went slower than I thought. But we're doing a lot of other things. Um, and, you know, we're now able to grow. Uh, sorry, I won't show you the movie in the interest of time. But we're now able to grow mouse trachea outside the body for about two months, which means we can visualize it with two-photon microscopy. We can now do CRISPR-Cas. We now basically do everything, like every biological experiment that modern biology allows in a mouse trachea sitting outside the body for two months, and it fully regenerates. So the next thing I want to do in the lab is do this with human. Because if we get that done, then we have a human in a dish, aside from the immune system and the blood and the other organs. But, you know, we've, we've come as close to possible uh, for one organ. And we'll probably get better because people will fuse these organs and dishes over time. Uh, and then I just wanted to tell you about the people that have been doing these experiments. Uh, only a certain subset of them are, uh, have any clinical training, and in, indeed the small fraction of them. And most of them are PhD scientists. But part of what's really exciting for me is the PhDs are really learning about disease and really kind of pushing forward the human biology. And I'm hoping that this collaboration that you know scientists that used to study the fly and maybe still do start working on disease and, and vice versa. So that's all I have to say for today. I'm sorry I'm a little bit late.